Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm John Palferman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Each month, John and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And John, I think you and I both agree that the topic we're going to take up today is one that just doesn't get enough attention. And that's a collection of conditions often referred to as Parkinson's Plus, though they're actually each distinct and separate diseases. They include progressive supranuclear palsy, multiple system atrophy, vascular Parkinson's, corticobasal degeneration, and dementia with Lewy bodies. They're each rare, sometimes exceedingly so, but they can take a devastating toll on patients and their families. And Dave, to find out more, we talked with Dr. Larry Golby, a professor of neurology at the Robert Wood Johnson School of Medicine at Rutgers University. We began our conversation by asking Larry Golby just what the distinguishing features were of these so-called Parkinson's plus conditions. These are diseases that are degenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease and also like Parkinson's they include rigidity of muscles and slowness of movement and soft speech and poor balance. But in addition, they have some other symptoms that Parkinson's does not. And Parkinson's has some symptoms that the others do not. So let's start with one progressive supranuclear palsy, or PSP. Am I right in thinking, Larry, that this was the disease that killed the comedian and musician Dudley Moore? That's right, yes. He was, in fact, one of your patients, is that correct? Yes. Talk about some of the features of this condition. Well, this is centered on the brain stem, which means that it affects a lot of the small muscles of the face and throat, so there's problems moving the eyes up and down, which is where the disease's name comes from, and there's a lot of difficulty with speech and swallowing. But a very important part of it is balance problems, which are worse in PSP than in Parkinson's. And another important part is a type of dementia, which is also much more important in PSP than in Parkinson's. And unfortunately, PSP does not respond to levodopa, which is the main treatment for Parkinson's. So this condition... You've described its differences clinically, right? It's been more rapid progression. Do you find differences at autopsy when you look pathologically at the brain tissue? Yes. In all of these neurodegenerative diseases, there's some protein that is aggregating abnormally. And in Parkinson's disease, that protein is alpha-synuclein, and it forms these clumps called Lewy bodies, but in PSP, the protein is tau protein, T-A-U, and the clumps are called neurofibrillary tangles. Larry, give us an idea of how common PSP is. Well, it's something like about 5% as common as Parkinson's disease. The prevalence is about 6 patients per 100,000 population. And that's if you count uh, everyone who has the disease, whether they've received the diagnosis or not. If you just count the people who have actually been diagnosed, it's more like one and a half per 100,000. So that comes to about 5,000 people in the United States who have the diagnosis and about another 15,000 who have the disease without having been diagnosed. 
So clinically, in the early phases of Parkinson, when somebody's in the first five years since diagnosis, is it a, a subtle business to clinically distinguish PSP from regular Parkinson's disease? Well, first of all, let's let's not think of PSP as a form of Parkinson's disease. It's a completely different disease. It just happens to overlap with Parkinson's disease in its uh, part of the brain that's affected. So the answer to your question is that in the first it's more like the first two years. It might be difficult to distinguish PSP from Parkinson's disease because they can both have slowness and stiffness. But certainly after that time, the two would be more easily distinguished because PSP has much more balance problems and it does not respond to the medication and it has more problems with speech and swallowing and eye movement. Before we move on to the next condition we want to talk about, Larry, I wanted to just pursue for a moment the question of, of why levodopa therapy doesn't work, whether that's PSP or, as I understand it, in some of these other conditions as well. Is that because the pathology is different, that it's, as you were saying about PSP, that it involves tau rather than alpha-synuclein? Or is it because dopamine cells don't go missing in PSP in the same way that they do in Parkinson's? Why, why is it that levodopa therapy isn't useful? It's because in Parkinson's, the cells that are missing are the ones that use dopamine as their neurotransmitter, as their way of encoding messages to the next set of brain cells. But that next set of brain cells in Parkinson's that's receiving those messages are intact. They are not breaking down. But in PSP, it's both sets that are breaking down. Mm. So the second set, the one that has the receptors for the dopamine, those are gone. So you can give all the dopamine you like, and there won't be any cells for them to talk to. I see. And so in, an, in the next condition, we're going to talk about multiple system atrophy, MSA. That also is not responsive, as I understand it, usually to, to L-DOPA. Is that for the same reason? That's right. And describe a little bit more then about, about multiple system atrophy, how it is distinguished from both Parkinson's, but perhaps also from PSP, the first condition we discussed. Sure. MSA is a, a rapidly progressive condition like PSP. So people typically will live on average between seven and eight years after the first symptoms. That's only an average. Uh, while with Parkinson's, it's more than twice that. And with MSA, there's usually a component of cerebellar dysfunction, which manifests as a, a lack of coordination with a coarse tremor, a kind of a drunken appearance, uh, a drunken quality to the speech and the walking and the hand movements. In addition to that, MSA usually has a lot of autonomic problems so that there's low blood pressure, particularly upon standing, a lot of bladder control problems, a lot of constipation uh, occurring much earlier in the course than they would in Parkinson's, which has a little bit of that, but it tends to be later in the course. It sounds like the overlap, though, with Parkinson's, with MSA, is a bit greater, perhaps, than with PSP, given that it also has, in a more acute form, those autonomic um, problems. Is that right? Well, in that respect, yes. But then there are other areas where MSA has more similarity to PSP than Parkinson's disease. For example, eye movement problems. Hmm. 
that's the hallmark of PST, but they're pretty common in MSA, and they're fairly minor in Parkinson's. Also, a tremor. You don't, you don't get much of a Parkinsonian tremor in either PSP or MSA, but in Parkinson's disease, you do. And what about with dementia in MSA? It's a, quite a minor issue, usually, probably less than in Parkinson's disease and a lot less than in PSP, but you can, it can still happen. Recently, there's been some news about whether MSA was a so-called prion disease, the concept made famous by Stanley Prusner, these proteins that behave in an infectious kind of way. I'm wondering what your reaction is to that, whether or not you think that's a real finding, and if, and if so, a significant finding. Well, it's difficult to comment on the validity of any one published paper because you get into a lot of technical details. But in general, there is a strong body of evidence growing up now in the last five years or so that show that most, if not all, of the neurodegenerative diseases do operate on this prion-like basis. In other words, they act by a process of misfolding of some protein which then can template itself. It templates its misfolded shape onto normal copies of the same protein in a kind of a chain reaction. And those misfolded protein molecules aggregate with each other, and the aggregates are toxic in some way, which we don't quite understand yet, and they damage the cells. And so a similar process is probably going on in MSA and Parkinson's and PSP and Alzheimer's. And so I guess in some ways the key word in that description you gave would be prion-like. In other words, the, the difference, at least as I understand it, is that with a, a true prion disease like mad cow disease, the, the proteins themselves are actually infectious. And in this case, that's what we still don't know, right? It's not like you could catch MSA. That's right. You can't catch MSA or Alzheimer's or PSP or Parkinson's. The more important distinction, I mean, that's important, but the technically critical distinction between Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease and those others is that the protein that's doing the aggregating and the misfolding in Creutzfeldt-Jakob is this protein called prion protein. And the prion protein isn't involved in those other diseases. And for some reason, the prion protein can be transmitted, the misfolding of the prion protein can be transmitted a little more easily than the equivalent misfolded protein for those other diseases. And just one last question, then we'll move on to a different condition with MSA, given that levodopa is not an effective therapy for the same reason it's not in, in PSP. Are there any effective therapies at this point for that condition? There are no known specific therapies, but we can treat the symptoms of the uh, disabilities of MSA very effectively in many cases. For example, the low blood pressure. There's lots of ways of raising blood pressure. The bladder problems can be treated in various ways, both medically and surgically. In fact, even the Parkinsonism, the, the slowness and the stiffness, can respond to levodopa early in the course of MSA, and it's certainly worth trying that drug. And the, the cognitive issues, such as the dementia, the depression, the anxiety that can occur in MSA, they can respond to the same medications that those symptoms uh, would respond to in anyone else. Okay. John, 
OK, Larry, could we move on to one that's not mentioned very often? That's vascular Parkinsonism. Can you tell me about this? I know very little about this. Well, this is not a neurodegenerative disease. This is simply a, um, a superficially similar outward appearance, similar to Parkinson's disease, that is caused by multiple small strokes, little infarctions, uh, which is uh, an infarction is an area of brain that has been deprived of its blood supply and dies. And these little strokes can occur asymptomatically. In other words, you can have one of these little strokes and not even know it, but over a period of time, once you accumulate enough of these, you start to feel the effects, and the effects can look like Parkinson's with slowness and stiffness and poor balance. If you get this, is there anything you can do about it? Physical therapy and adjusting your risk factors to reduce the chance of future strokes. Risk factors meaning, of course, diabetes control, hypertension control, uh, hyperlipidemia control, exercise, giving up smoking. Unfortunately, the most important risk factor is heredity, and you can't do anything about that yet. Is this pretty rare, or, or is it not, not as rare as all that? It's a little bit controversial, actually. Um, we don't really have good diagnostic criteria. There's not a great correlation between the MRI appearance and the clinical appearance. In fact, there are some experts who believe that this condition doesn't really barely exists or maybe doesn't exist at all and that patients who have been diagnosed as having vascular Parkinsonism actually have something else uh, like normal pressure hydrocephalus or PSP. Interesting. So let's move on to another one, corticobasal degeneration. This is a even rarer condition than MSA and PSP. It's about one-tenth of the prevalence of those conditions, and those conditions are about one-twentieth of the prevalence of Parkinson's. Corticobasal, it involves multiple areas of the brain, and it's very asymmetric in its uh, anatomy. So it starts with typically one hand becoming clumsy, and then stiff. There may be a little tremor. There's not much gait problems or balance problems or dementia, but then the entire side of the body becomes stiff, and then it spreads to the other side of the body. And there can be painful spasms. There can be dystonia, which means sustained abnormal postures of the limbs. And the, the life expectancy is similar to PSP and MSA somewhere between five and ten years, typically between seven and eight. So, and this is driven also by tau rather than alpha-synuclein, is that correct? That's right. Corticobasal is a tauopathy, and in fact, there's a lot more tau to be seen through the microscope in corticobasal than in PSP. It just occurs to me, when we were talking about multiple system atrophy, that's actually spread by alpha-synuclein, but in the glial cells, is that correct? The pathology there's different again, yet again. That's right. It seems to start in the glial cells in MSA. In PSP, it may also start in the glial cells, but a different set of glial cells. So this is very, very complicated. Dave, I wonder if you want to move on to Lewy body disease. Yeah, let's pick up with one other condition, and then we can perhaps talk more broadly about the prospects both in research and, and treatment for people who suffer from all of these very unusual and, and complicated conditions. Uh, but as John mentioned, that's that's uh, sometimes called Lewy body disease or, or dementia with Lewy bodies. Tell us more about what that is. 
This is a, uh, a disease that, that more affects the cerebral cortex. It's similar to Parkinson's in that it involves Lewy bodies, but whereas Parkinson's starts more in the basal ganglia, which is deeper down in the brain where the motor, the movements are controlled, and in the brain stem, which is where uh, a lot of the small movements of the, the head and neck are controlled, that's Parkinson's. Dementia with Lewy bodies starts up in the cerebral cortex, so typically the first signs are uh, cognitive loss or psychosis, which means hallucinations or delusions, or some affective problem, meaning an emotional problem like anxiety or depression. And either very shortly thereafter, or maybe even simultaneously, you have the motor features of Parkinson's, the movement problems. Whereas with Parkinson's disease, the movement problems are always first by a fairly wide margin. Hmm. Other than that, the, the diseases are very similar, although with DLD, it has these odd fluctuations, spontaneous fluctuations unrelated to medication so that someone can get very confused for a few hours or a few days or even become comatose for a few hours or a few days, and that does not happen with Parkinson's. And with dementia with Lewy bodies, is levodopa similarly ineffective as it is with these other so-called plus conditions, or because of its closer similarity to Parkinson's, is it sometimes more useful? Well, it is, uh, levodopa is more useful in DLB than in PSP and MSA. It's not quite as effective as Parkinson's disease. And there's also the problem that levodopa is more likely to precipitate some kind of hallucinations in DLB because those patients are already prone to that kind of thing. But it is definitely useful and it's worth trying. And if there's hallucinations, then you try to deal with those. Let's talk more broadly about what we're learning about these conditions, what the challenges are in, in research, and, and as important, of course, the challenges um, for patients. W with Parkinson's, it seems like the current best hope is this idea of trying to do something about the sticky protein that's the culprit in Parkinson's alpha-synuclein, whether it's busting up those clumps or some kind of immunotherapy. Given that these all of these conditions involve one kind of sticky protein or another, would that also be the kind of long-term hope for these conditions as well? Yes. Uh, the long-term hope, it's kind of a, a double-pronged attack. One prong is to look for the features that all the conditions have in common, which is that they all involve misfolding and templating and probably a similar type of toxicity and trying to interrupt that. And if a treatment works for one of these diseases, there's a good chance that it'll work for all of them. The other prong is looking at each disease on its own with its own peculiar set of abnormal events and trying to find a drug target there. And what are the prospects in that arena? Do you have higher hopes, for example, with one of these conditions than another that something that is specific to it will, will prove out? Higher hopes for one than the other? Well, since there's a lot more attention being paid to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's than the others, you have to figure that those are where the, the first success is going to be just on a statistical likelihood 
basis. I meant within this body of these unusual conditions is developing a specific drug for, let's say, MSA. Are the prospects there? Are we further along, I guess, with one of these unusual conditions than another? Okay. Well, the answer to that question clearly is PSP because there's so much activity right now trying to find the magic bullet for Alzheimer's, which is this huge public health issue, that since both Alzheimer's and PSP are telepathies, uh, PSP is being used as the test bed for treatments for Alzheimer's. Hmm. And this, of course, is going to hopefully, if something that's successful, will first work on PSP and then they'll test it in Alzheimer's. So this is this is lucky for PSP. And by extension, would that also apply to corticobasal since it's a tauopathy as well? Yes, it should. But uh, you have to realize that corticobasal is more difficult to to do research on. For one thing, it's rare, so it's hard to get enough patients together into a study. And for another thing, about half of all people who look like they have corticobasal clinically actually don't have corticobasal degeneration. They have some other condition, and that makes it difficult to do a clinical trial. Yeah. John. So, Larry, do you feel that these conditions that we've been talking about have been somewhat neglected because they're they're complicated, but they're very rare and difficult to sort of institute clinical trials on? Right. They've been neglected because they're rare, so there's not that much of a financial incentive. And they're hard to diagnose. There's no specific diagnostic tests yet. So that's another reason why they're hard to study. And also, there haven't been good biomarkers. So not only does that make it difficult to diagnose these patients to create a pure culture, if you will, of people to study, but it also makes it hard to see if your treatment is working, if there's no biomarker to follow to assess the actual progress of the disease. Because they're so rare, can they get orphan disease status? Does that help at all? Oh, yes. They, they have orphan disease status, and that helps a lot. Can you say just a bit more about that, defining what orphan disease status means and, and how that's helpful? This is a designation by the FDA, I think it is, where a disease that meets a certain criterion of rarity, I forget what the exact number is, but studying a drug for such a disease or a device, will uh, the device or drug will get extended patent protection, and there will be certain um, a less stringent set of testing criteria for the uh, the drug to be approved. Because these all these conditions seem to share, unfortunately, a more rapid degree of progression than Parkinson's, and because we haven't been as successful or focused as much attention in terms of developing disease-specific treatments, I wonder how you work with families, Larry, and, and what would you encourage those families who are dealing with one of these conditions um, to do, whether that's to become more engaged in in research or to find trials. I'm I'm just interested in how you try to help people who are struggling with what is clearly such a a difficult situation. Uh, Yeah, I spend a a lot of my time dealing with that exact issue. First of all, it's very helpful to make an accurate diagnosis because these people have been bouncing around from one doctor to another, from one specialist to another, getting all kinds of tests, sometimes getting all sorts of fruitless treatments, 
and not knowing what their prognosis is going to be, not knowing if they've got something hereditary, which is very stressful to the patient and their family members as well. So just giving them the right diagnosis and telling them what's available is a huge help. And then even though I don't have a specific treatment for them in terms of a curative or a or a treatment that will stop the progression, still I can do an awful lot for a lot of the symptoms. It, it may be something like referring them to a physical therapist who's familiar with this disease, or it may be referring them to a psychiatrist or a psychologist who's familiar with it, or giving them medication for their bladder problems or referring them to a neurourologist who I work with who's very familiar with the bladder problems of these conditions. In other words, it's it's management, it's palliative until the fine day comes when we do have a specific treatment. Also, when a patient comes to an academic center, they are likely to have access to uh, treatment trials or other research projects. Even a research project that doesn't promise any kind of treatment, still patients are usually very eager to participate in them because it's uh, it's kind of their way of fighting back. It, it gives them an opportunity to really do something that might help future generations uh, avoid the diseases. That was Dr. Larry Golby, professor of neurology at the Robert Wood Johnson School of Medicine at Rutgers University. And John, it's a difficult catalog of diseases to go through. I think listening to all of that, I was struck by no matter how challenging Parkinson's can be, and it certainly can be at times, um, these conditions really are so dire. And the challenge is made even greater by the fact that they're so rare, that they just haven't received the kind of research funding or research attention that so many other neurodegenerative diseases do. No, it's tragic stuff. In some ways, these diseases are are like Parkinson's was before they discovered levodopa. The progression was very rapid, and in a matter of a few years, people get very sick. So I, I really do hope they get more attention. Incidentally, Dave, Dr. Larry Golby is the same Larry Golby who discovered the Contorsi Kindred in a piece of fantastic genetic detective work in the 1980s. He's really had a quite quite remarkable career going on to deal with the Parkinson Plus conditions after that, don't you think? No, it was news to me, I have to admit, um, because when we did this interview until I did a little bit of background reading, I had not realized that he had played such a significant role in that really landmark turn in Parkinson's research that turned us to the subject of of genetics and the work that he did with the Contorsi Kindred and discovering the gene mutation that led to our greater understanding of the role of alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's. And by the way, John, that'll be our our topic on our, our next podcast in this series for the Portland Countdown when we'll talk with Dr. Christine Klein further about the role of genetics in Parkinson's. So I'll, I'll look forward to our next conversation that really will take up that topic in greater detail. Interesting. Well, I guess that's all we've got time for for this session. So until next time, I'm John Palferman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Thanks for joining us on the Portland Countdown. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition, with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.